I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. We've all heard about how great meditation is supposed to be. It will calm your anxiety, lower your blood pressure, and improve your mood. If you can find the time or sit still for more than two minutes. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. This is Podcast Playlist, and my guest today is here to tell you that no matter how fidgety or skeptical you may be, you can still experience the benefits of meditation. Dan Harris is a former anchor for ABC News, and as a journalist, he covered natural disasters and reported from multiple combat zones. And one day when he was live on air, he had a panic attack. After that, he knew he needed to make some drastic changes in his life. He took up meditation and wrote the book, 10% Happier, How I Tame the Voice in My Head, Reduced Stress Without Losing My Edge, and Found Self-Help That Actually Worked. Today, 10% Happier is also a popular meditation app and a podcast. This year also marks the release of a 10th anniversary edition of the 10% Happier book. Dan Harris is with me now to talk about his work and share some of his favorite podcasts. Dan, welcome to Podcast Playlist. Thanks for having me. I'll see if I can nudge you toward meditation during the course of this conversation. <laughs> great. I would love that because I'm really bad at it, actually. So that's great. Um, Just to say, when people tell me they're bad at it, yes, I usually compute that correctly, I believe. I'm not correct about a lot of things, but I'm correct about this, that um, that, that actually means you're good at it, that you're doing it right. You just don't know that. Already, this is a great start to this interview. I'm glad. That's so positive. What What do you mean by that? Why, why, why am I actually good, even though I think I'm bad? Well, a common mistake that people make is they sit down and try to meditate, try to focus on their breath. That's usually the beginning instruction. And then they are bombarded by all sorts of random thoughts and urges and emotions, thinking about what's for lunch, planning a homicide, whatever it is. <laughs> and... They then tell themselves a whole story about how these distractions are proof that they're bad mm. at meditation, that they have some sort of bespoke lunacy. However, the fact that you are waking up from your distraction and seeing it over and over and over again is proof that you're doing it correctly. That's the whole game. Uh, as I often say, clearing your mind is impossible. Stopping your thinking is impossible unless you're enlightened or you have died. The whole game is just to try to focus the mind for a few nanoseconds at a time. And then every time you get distracted, you start again and again and again. And the waking up from distraction, the seeing how wild your mind is, that's the victory. Because what what you want to do is, is get some visibility into how cacophonous your mind is so that the cacophony doesn't own you as much. Hmm. That's so interesting. Okay, I'm gonna. I'm leaving now to go try and meditate. Now I'm fascinated. <laughs> now I gotta go try it again. Um, you know, I I hear many stories about people starting meditation, starting up a practice, and then getting all these benefits. So, what changed in your life after you started meditating regularly? 
A lot of things change. I'm not here to tell you that there was some like nonstop parade of rainbow barfing unicorns <laughs> after I started to meditate. It's not. It doesn't work like. I don't think there. There. I don't think there are any silver bullets. I just think this is one useful tool among many, including you know exercise, eating reasonably healthy, getting enough sleep. Uh, I think it's one tool among many that can help you marginally improve your health and happiness and relationships. And it's a skill that will improve over time, just like any other skill, just like any sport you play or any musical instrument you pick up. So for me, it, it I, I think there are a couple of specific areas where it really helped. And this is all backed up by the science because there's been an explosion of scientific research into meditation over the last 20 or so years. So what I'm saying is not unique to me. I would say of the three benefits off the top of my head, one is that it just, it helped me focus. Uh, the second is that it gave me sort of more self-awareness or mindfulness, which is, is just like the ability to see the thoughts in your head without being owned by them. And the third is that it, it just kind of gave me a general sense of increased calm. I'm an anxious person, so it did not erase my anxiety, but it turned the volume down in very useful ways. And just you know, just to sum this up, there's a reason why I called the book 10% Happier. It's it's not a miracle cure. But this, you know, now that I'm stuck with math jokes the rest of my life, <laughs> the 10% compounds annually like any good investment. And you just get better and better over time. And it's not an unbroken upward trajectory. It's kind of bumpy. Usually you'll have bad days. I certainly do. But the overall direction is positive in my experience. You mentioned the science. How did learning about this science of meditation change the way you thought about it? Drastically. Um, you know, I, a lot has changed. The book came out 10 years ago, and, and it was really aimed at skeptics. And, I, and, and there are still plenty of skeptics, but the culture has really changed. And generally speaking, people are, I think, markedly less skeptical about meditation than I was, and certainly than, than people were in 2014 when the book came out. But for me, I got interested in meditation in like 2008, 2009. I sometimes joke it was the first time in my life I've ever been ahead of a trend. <laughs> um, and I, I came at it with an intense level of skepticism. You know, I, I had a several decades as a news correspondent, and uh, so skepticism is part of the job, as you know. And also was raised by atheists, um, although these atheists were <laughs> ex-hippies. And so uh, they forced me to go to a lot of like health food stores and yoga classes and stuff like that. And so I had, a, I think, well-deserved um, hatred and suspicion of anything new agey. So all of that meant that I was really not, um, I did not have a congenial attitude when it came to meditation. So it really took the science to wake me up to the potential here. And the science is, it's quite interesting. It's definitely in its early stages and, and I don't want to overstate it, but I think it's safe to say that the data strongly suggests that short daily doses of meditation for regular people can produce a long list of health benefits, lowered uh, blood pressure, lowered release of the stress hormone cortisol. It's been shown to be particularly beneficial for people with anxiety and depression. Um, I would check both of those boxes personally. Uh, Age-related cognitive decline, ADHD. So it's it's quite compelling. And and the and the neuroscience, the the studies of what it does to the human brain are also really interesting. That it can 
cause growth uh, in in the gray matter in the area of the brain associated with self-awareness and compassion and and a, a beneficial shrinkage in the area of the brain associated with stress so that all really really helped me and i think it's very compelling to to skeptics now and i just want to note that you know 10 years have passed and the culture has changed so i i i tend not to um I tend not to assume that everybody's as hostile now as they were when I first wrote the book. Well, tell me about that hostility. I mean, what what did people around you think about this new practice when you started it up in 2008 or 2009? There was almost universal suspicion and mockery in my life and in my personal circle in, um, when I started to meditate. One big exception would be my wife. Um, She's a scientist and she saw the science right I was telling her about the science right when I was learning about it and she found that very compelling. And she was married to a very annoying person who started to become <laughs> less annoying. Um, as I actually, I don't, uh, you'll have to bleep this, but um, I, the first sign that meditation was working for me was a few weeks in and we were at a cocktail party and I heard Bianca say to somebody, oh yeah, Dan started meditating and he's less of a <laughs> and I thought, well, that's just a great data point. Um, and, and often that's true. People around you might notice it before you do. Hmm. But but having said that, like my, my little brother, uh, my parents, a lot of my coworkers were really either skeptical or sarcastic or genuinely concerned that I was meditating. And in fact, the title of the book comes from a conversation I was having with a colleague and I think this must have been 2009 or 10, and I had just come home from my first meditation retreat, and my colleague was saying something to the effect of, what's the matter with you? Like, why would you do this? You used to be normal. And I was straining for some kind of answer, and I said, oh, you know, it makes me like 10% happier. Mm -hmm. And I could see the look on her face change from scorn to mild interest, and I thought, okay, that's my shtick. That's how I'm going to pitch this now uh, from now on. And I, I'm... I still, you know, I, I actually, I stand by that insight. I think that's, that is genuinely and generally how it works. Oh, I, I will add that many of the people who were skeptical, including my little brother, are now devout and regular <laughs> meditators. Uh, so I find no small amount of satisfaction in that. Well, I, I know now it's been years and years of you doing this, this practice. Are you still good about keeping up with daily meditation? I'm just wondering what happens if you don't meditate regularly. Okay, well, just to say, it, habit formation is really hard, and that sounds um, like a bummer. But actually, I want you to hear that as liberating because a lot of people, especially early in in the year, will you know try to you know adopt some sort of healthy habit and and bail on it pretty quickly, mm -hmm. and then tell themselves a whole story about how they're uniquely dysfunctional in this regard. But actually, human beings are genuinely and generally not good at this. Um, and so you don't, I think you, th that should lead you to have a, um, an attitude of like a, some degree of flexibility and experimentation and even maybe a sense of humor about uh, how difficult it is to adopt a habit. Having said all of that, I'm a bit of a mutant. Like I'm actually um, pretty good at adopting habits. So I'm pretty good about keeping up my meditation habit. I, I do, on a good day, I'll get in about an hour. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't think, I think for you, Leah, or anybody else who's at the beginning, like, I like to say one minute counts. Hmm. And if you fall off the wagon, which is completely normal, you can always get back on. Nothing's been lost. Just start again. Um, and for me, I do notice that if life 
interrupts and I have a couple of days where, you know, somebody's sick and I, I don't get to meditate as much as I would like, I really do see how my my inner the inner toxicity ramps up in mm. really unhelpful ways. However, actually seeing that is really useful because it, it provides me with some good intrinsic motivation to to get back at it. In your book, you talk about how competitive you have to be to find success in journalism, which is what you were doing, and, and that toll that it took on you. What was it about meditation specifically for you that helped you heal from years of working such a high-stress job? One of the principal preoccupations of 10% Happier, which is still something I think about a lot, is how can you straddle the line between mental health, contentment, enoughness, okayness, happiness, whatever you want to call it, and striving for excellence and ambition and competitiveness. There isn't some, I think I'm saying this again, there is no silver bullet that I've found. Um, there's a great couples counselor. She's written a bunch of books. Her name is Esther Perel, and she's appeared on my podcast a, a number of times. I absolutely love and and really kind of revere this person. She's a genius. And she has this expression that I think is apt in this moment, which is some things are not problems to be fixed. They're dynamics to be managed. And that's, I think we're talking about one right now, which is how can you increase uh, your calm quotient without losing your edge? And what I've come to see is that actually it's, they're not necessarily in conflict. That actually, if you're less emotionally reactive, more focused, calmer, all of the benefits that meditation can confer, less anxious, that actually you, you'll be better at your job. The thing people, many people fear is complacency, which is actually, not, that's, that's not what happiness looks like. Um, so I, I try to get myself into a zone of like, um, like a happy warrior. I'm happily engaged in the things I'm doing. I'm picking goals that are meaningful and important and maybe even remunerative that might make me money. Um, but I feel good about the work that I'm doing and the people I'm doing it with. And that's, I, I have not found some like clear recipe for that that works all the time. It's just a dynamic that needs to be managed. Right. And on your podcast, you cover a really wide variety of guests and topics for people. You've talked to Buddhist monks, scientists, Hollywood actors. What do they all have in common that makes them good guests for the show? Well, first of all, it's just hard to be alive. Um, and so anybody who, I mean, no matter how many advantages you have, even if you're a famous a famous and wildly successful actor. I'm thinking of an interview I did recently with Bill Hader, who's just an incredibly successful comedian um, and actor. And, you know, he's got tons of anxiety. Um, and so what makes a good guest is somebody who's just willing to speak honestly about this stuff. And I think somebody like Bill Hader is doing a public service, using his platform as a well-known person to talk about the realities of his inner world uh, normalizes it, makes it okay for other people to to acknowledge their own stuff. Well, I want to play a bit of the podcast now for those who haven't heard it. Um, this is from your episode with the legendary music producer Rick Rubin. Let's take a listen. This is 10% Happier. I thought we'd start, if you're cool with it, with meditation. We talk a lot about meditation on this show. And I've heard that you started meditating when you were 14. That is true. How and why? 
my neck hurt when I was in school. And my parents brought me to the pediatrician who delivered me, who happened to be hip. This was in the mid-70s, maybe late 70s. And he said my neck problems were stress, and he recommended I learn to meditate. And I learned TM at that point in time. And um, I would say it probably had more impact on my life than maybe anything else I've done. Hmm. Transcendental meditation it's an organization and a practice that originates from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Yes. 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 And basically with respect to him, it really did kind of, and this is a little cute TM trademark and ancient technique of mantra based meditation. So he was drawing on ancient traditions and there's been plenty of research to suggest that TM is really good for you, but on a, and of one level, like what did it do for you that made it the most meaningful thing? Um, I didn't know it was as meaningful as it was until I stopped doing it and then started doing it again. So I started when I was 14. I stopped when I was in college. A year after college, I moved to California and I decided I was going to start meditating again. And I remember I didn't just start. I remember it was a big decision to start meditating again. It wasn't, I didn't take it trivially. And it took me a couple of months from the time that I decided I want to until I actually re-engaged and from the first time that I sat this second period of meditation after doing it for the years I did it before, from the very first time, I recognized, first of all, how familiar it felt right away. Like this is a part of my life that I'm reconnecting with. I understood it, having been away from it and coming back to it, as this is a big part of my life and this is a big part of why I am the way I am, whatever that is, this is a piece of it. And I think I've always been able to see past what's the surface of what's going on and tune in more to the deeper meaning or what's really going on. You know, not maybe not so much what people are saying, but what's beneath what they're saying or the energy in the music and what emotion is rooted in it. Or um, when people tell stories, that the stories are often as much about themselves as they are about what they're talking about. I just saw all of these levels that I did not see before learning to meditate. What was it about the practice, the nuts and bolts of the practice that enabled that deeper way of seeing? I can't tell you I know how it works. I would say that it's a silent mantra practice. There are meditation practices that are more awareness-based where you take in everything that's around you. You're aware of everything going on. And then there are meditation practices that are rooted in concentration. And TM is a concentration-based practice. So you focus all of your attention on the practice. And if any thoughts come up during the practice, you don't push them down, but you don't engage in them. You let them pass and you come back. Every time you realize you're not engaging in the meditation practice, as soon as you realize you're not doing it, you just go back to doing it. That's all. Very simple practice. And I suppose so much of the internal chatter, self-chatter that goes on, we're not aware that it's happening when it's happening. We all have it. It goes on all the time. And through the meditation practice, we come into contact and we get to see this thing, this ongoing argument with ourselves <laughs> and get to step aside from it and 
just be in the moment. Just be here now with whatever the object of our focus is. So just to state that back to you, as the volume of the internal chatter went down for you as a result of doing this concentration practice, then as you moved through the world, the yammering voices had less salience, less purchase within your mind, and that allowed you to see things that were heretofore missed. Yes, and I could see those chattering voices in other people. Mm. I was aware that when people were saying things, it was rarely what was going on with them. It was a surface reaction to a situation based on a past experience, and it was just this momentary thing. And um, I can give you a specific example. In my family, my closest relative other than my parents was a cousin who was the son of my father's brother. And he was my favorite cousin growing up because he was probably about five years older than me. And he was a cool kid and he was more of a, an adult. And, you know, he could drive before I could drive and he listened to cool music before I listened to cool music. So he was someone that I looked up to. And he was very close to his dad, my father's brother. And then my father's brother passed away. And at the funeral, my cousin lashed out at my father and said some very mean things to him. And my father never really forgave the cousin for doing this. And I tried explaining to my father, because they were very close as well. My, my favorite cousin and my father were very close, always very close. And I explained, my cousin is going through a terrible pain. He lost his dad. This is as bad of a, of a moment as he has. He's lashing out in the world. He's angry. And he's close enough to you to be able to show his true pain to you. It has nothing to do with you. His dad just died. He's burying his dad. That's what this is about. This isn't about you. That's an example of, I don't know if I would have been aware of that had I not been a meditator. Yeah, that really tracks with my experience that the more you get comfortable with, familiar with your own inner chaos and cacophony, the more you recognize that that's going on for everybody. And that inexorably, I believe, leads to a kind of empathy. Absolutely. And it's harder to um, hold a grudge for someone who's acting out their pain, even if you happen to be in the way. When you see that, this is not about you. You're a stand-in for what's going on. And yet I remain pretty skilled at holding those grudges. <laughs> That was a clip from the podcast 10% Happier. The guest in that episode was Rick Rubin. Their team includes Lauren Smith, Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Tara Anderson, DJ Kashmir, and Marissa Schneiderman. It's hosted by Dan Harris, who's with me today to share some of his favorite podcasts. Well, I... I want to talk to you about meditation basically for all the time that uh, we have, but I've been told that we need to move on to your podcast picks. Um, and uh, I was really interested in the shows that you picked. The first show on your list is Pivot from New York Magazine. Uh, what is this show about? This show is about business and technology. It really, the, the magic of the show is the co-hosts. Right. I used to be a morning television anchor, and the magic of morning television was always 
Is there a sense of camaraderie? Do you want to come hang out with us? And the hosts of Pivot, uh, Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway, clearly have an enormous amount of respect and uh, affection for one another. And they're both brilliant in their own specific ways. So that that creates an alchemy that makes this show um, special beyond the content. Okay, we're going to listen to some of it now. This is a conversation about artificial intelligence. And in this clip, the guest is Joy Bulamwini. She's the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League and the author of Unmasking AI, My Mission to Protect What is Human in a World of Machines. So let's talk about this book and your role in the Algorithmic Justice League, which is a great name. Um, how did rooting out bias in AI become a mission for you? You obviously were working on facial recognition. That's what you got well known for. Um, talk a little bit about why you're focused on this. I guess it's just the latest landscape, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. So my experience actually came from being an artist. I was a student at MIT and I was working on an installation and in that process, I was using face tracking uh, technology to do an interactive piece. And long story short, the system didn't really track my face that well until I literally put on a white mask. And so it was that white mask exploration that led to the cover of the book, Unmasking AI, but also led to deeper questions. Are machines neutral? And at that time, especially with the deep learning revolution that was happening, I was reading about so many AI breakthroughs. So I was curious why my personal experiences didn't seem to be adding up to the literature I was reading in the computer vision space, machine learning, AI more broadly. And so then as I dug further, it went beyond facial recognition. We start thinking about other areas in which we're using data-powered AI tools. And so we start thinking about healthcare. We start thinking about hiring, employment, housing, and that is why I realized I had to continue this work because AI is touching so many aspects of our day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, you use the phrase coded gaze in your research into AI bias. What does that mean? Explain that. The, the mask makes sense. Like it can't see you if you don't have a white face, essentially. Yeah. So I think about notions of the male gaze or the white gaze coming um, from various scholars, which is to say, who has power? Who gets to decide what is viewed as worthy? What gets the spotlight? And also who has the power to shape the priorities of the technologies uh, we see. So like men have had power and white people have had power, hence the male gaze and the white gaze. Here I'm putting those cousin concepts into the notion of who has power when it comes to shaping AI. Mm -hmm. And who would that be? Let me guess. Who do you think? It's the pale males <laughs> I often talk about, you know? Yeah. But one of the things that's interesting is a lot of uh, women and women of color have been very early, not just to the warnings, because I don't find them quite as doom scrolling as others in in the space, um, have been very early to these warnings, at least, or the need for mitigation. I think that's probably the best way to put it. Yes. I mean, some of my earlier reflections, I saw the work of people like Dr. Safia Noble, who wrote Algorithms of Oppression, Virginia Rube uh, Eubanks with Automating 
uh, inequality. And I do think there's this notion of outsider within. So when you're in a space where you're not necessarily centered, it can be easier to see some of the cracks in the system. I think of the work of Dr. Latanya Sweeney, for example. She was trying to prove to a reporter in a conversation that search engines couldn't be biased. And so she put in her name. And when she put in her name, ads uh, suggesting that she had an arrest record came up. Right. And this was around 2012 ish, you know, and it was that personal experience that then led to the greater research exploration. And my own journey mirrors hers. So I do think sometimes when you're an outsider, I wasn't even <laughs> attempting to create something like the Algorithmic Justice League. I was working uh, on an artist installation and so at MIT. At yeah. MIT. So it's not a situation where I was actively seeking this, but my mm -hmm. life experiences brought me into contact with some of these issues that those who are more often centered might not even see. Okay, Pale Mail, it's your turn. <laughs> So yeah, there's a lot of catastrophizing and there's a lot of people who are optimists. And now that we're almost a year in uh, with respect to the launch of the, some of the consumer applications, whether it's GPT or Claude, and so we've seen kind of the commercial applications of some of these things, and we do have some experience under our belt. As an expert in the area, have you become, on the continuum, are you based on what you see empirically so far, are you more of an optimist or lean more with the, the, the catastrophe? Or is there, a, is there somewhere else? I am somewhere else, right? So between fear and fascination, between hype and doom, I look at this as a, an opportunity uh, space. And so my fear with all of the doomerism, right, is that we don't actually get to experience the benefits of AI if we shut things down um, too soon, right? And then my fear with the hype is that that belief in the hype leads to decisions that end up being harmful. So here's an example. We're excited about ChatGPT. What can chatbots do? You have a nonprofit called NETA, National uh, Eating Disorder Association. So I think it was May 25th. The headline is the company has replaced their call center workers with the chatbot. They wanted to unionize management said no, right? All right, chatbot is online. People with eating disorders start reaching out. Turns out the chatbot was giving advice known to make eating disorders worse. And so I bring this up because then they had to shut it down. And this was because of the belief in the hype of what the systems could do, even though the capabilities weren't actually proving fit to contacts. And that happens so often where we see contacts collapse. The demo looks sweet. All right, let's adopt it without truly making sure it makes sense with what we're attempting to do. And what do you like? Give me an example of what you're optimistic about. Well, I truly believe the release uh, with AlphaFold with 200 million protein folding structures is a huge contribution to science. And I actually start the book as the daughter of an artist and a scientist and feeding cancer cells in my dad's lab. And so those sort of protein folding structures uh, you'll see with AlphaFold. When I was a little girl, 
I would see that in my dad's office and he wanted me to get into uh, chemistry and computer aided <laughs> drug development. And I, I kind of went a different route. Um, but I, I do think that offers uh, exciting uh, potential. I think about companies like Bloomer Tech, where they've noticed this huge gap with women's health. So, so many AI systems are being trained with other types of pale male data that doesn't really reflect the rest of society. And so what's that opportunity to close these data gaps so we actually create more robust tools? From New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network, that was a clip from Pivot. It's hosted by Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. And their guest in that clip was Joy Bulamwini. Their team includes Laren Amon, Zoe Marcus, and Taylor Griffin. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of the Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at the Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart. And for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The next podcast on your list is called The Watch. What is this one about? The Watch is about TV shows. Specifically, we live in a golden era for television. And so I would be drawn to shows about TV, but I keep coming back to this one because of the quality of and of the hosts and the camaraderie between the two of them. Uh, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan are old, old friends, and that really shows in there in the interplay uh, on the air and um, they're both really smart and and obsessed with the, the with the topic so with the topic of of modern television so i love listening to them okay let's listen to some of it now in this episode co-host andy greenwald and chris ryan talk about netflix's dominance of the streaming world i do think it matters that netflix for the majority of people of a certain generation a generation that um is now learning to pay their own membership fees to yeah. Netflix. Yeah. Netflix is a word like Kleenex. It is the brand has become the thing. And I think it does matter. I think that if you polled people what their hierarchy of when they sit down in front of their television set to mm -hmm. do the interminable relationship straining scroll through your various streaming <laughs> services. Um, could you hear the pain in my voice? Um <laughs> No, maybe I, I, pr I promise the good stuff's on Paramount Plus. <laughs> We're trying. I know. Um, Backish, man. Come on. CTC. Um, the ubiquity of Netflix means that I think it is still the first place people look for something new. Yeah. I just, I simply think that's the case. And I think that he's really right to single out those two shows. And maybe the flip side of it is our own experience recently where we feel, and I've talked to a few people, just obviously small sample size about the gold. And there, I think the people I speak to can be divided into two categories. One, I've never heard of it. Right. And thus, how dare you? I thought you were my friend and listened to my podcast. Or two, what a great show that absolutely doesn't matter in the conversation. And put the gold on Netflix. Is that different? Maybe. Yeah, I think. To a degree. You mentioned the small sample size. We have the smallest of sample sizes here. Because when I when mm -hmm. you were outside of the studio for a minute, I asked Kaya what she did this weekend. And she mentioned watching No Hard Feelings, the raunchy Jennifer Lawrence comedy uh, from earlier this year, which 
did a run in theaters, mm-hmm. did fine, okay, underperformed, I guess. Yeah. Uh, then was on Peacock for a period of time. I think it was VOD, then it was on Peacock, and now it's on Netflix. I believe that was the trajectory of it. I'm not looking to Kaya to verify this, but what I am looking to Kaya for mm-hmm. is to ask her, why is it after, what, eight, six, seven months of No Hard Feelings being in existence, was Netflix the reason you pulled mm-hmm. the trigger on watching this? First of all, I did not know it was on Peacock. As oh. I've stated the here Peacock previously, fan. I'm number one Peacock subscriber. <laughs> and I, if tier. I had known if it, it that it was on there, then I probably would have watched it on there. But I saw, I just saw like I don't know tweets, tweets. saying that it was going to be on Netflix this weekend, and I was like, you know what? Why not? I have Netflix. I do have Netflix. I have my own account now, too, sure so I have to make use of it. I, I'm fascinated by this conversation topic because, mm-hmm. I, as you know, I'm a UX guy. I've always, always wanted to talk been. about the user experience of these different platforms. I don't know that Netflix is that much more user-friendly than, well, I do know that it's more user-friendly than a lot it's of these. It's more user-friendly. But, I mean, is it anywhere near what Amazon Prime is dealing? I don't know. You, know, you mean but- in terms of the UX? Yes. <laughs> I think I speak for everyone. I but yes. I, I am very, it's like the two, the, the, the suggestion that Matt makes, which is like Beckham and Lupin are somewhat buoyed by just being on Netflix. And what would they be? I could totally see Beckham being on Apple TV plus just like the messy doc is. Yes. And the messy doc has largely been dismissed, you know, as kind of dull. And now part of that might be that Messi doesn't have as sensational an off field story as Beckham. Right. Uh, part he also, of it, he's not a beekeeper. He's also still playing mm-hmm. and is like actively still trying to sort of manage his career. He's not a beekeeper. He's not grilling a single mushroom to get the perfect flavor. Uh, and Lupin is a great, great example of uh, something that Netflix has kind of cornered the market on, which is the international genre show like phenomenon. You know, like these, whether it's Squid Game, whether it's Dark, whether it's Lupin, like distributing tv from all over the world and kind of shooting it through that netflix Mm -hmm. lens so that people kind of give things a chance that they ordinarily wouldn't look it's you can see it across the board um our friends at the home box office corporation have been licensing content to netflix again and seeing and in as soon as that happens i feel like i anecdotally start seeing like tweets about insecure or tweets about band of brothers now Part of it is like, I, I do think part of it is like the McRib phenomenon, which is like, oh, it's back. Uh, sure. In the sense that like it feels, you, it's, you re, it, being in a different place where you're not looking for but it is I, surprising. But friends, I would get, venture to guess yeah. to say that friends and The Office did better on Netflix than they did There's on a, Peacock and Max. There is no doubt that they And part did. of that might be because people watched them like three times during the pandemic and then finally they went to another service and they were like, yeah, I just watched Friends twice. Partly. I, I also think you could, if you worked at um, Peacock or Max, you would say, well, it, they matter more to us because we don't have other things to, to use your word to buoy our larger yeah. content offering. But yeah, Netflix is still the one. I mean, it's still number one. And it, people interact with it differently. They binge it differently. They, they consider it to be part of the conversation differently because it is still, I think, the one that everybody has. You know, and um, we talk about the conversation coming out of the summer is like, well, what, how are these other services going to get their version of suits? Well, some of them have suits. Some of them had suits. Yeah. Or versions of yeah, suits was, already. Was it suits on Hulu or on Peacock? It was, I am sure it was on Peacock at some point and may, may well be again when it reverts, but like, it might still be, <laughs> it, it might still be is the greatest point. It's not just suits. It's suits with Netflix's reach is yeah. the thing that makes the difference. 
From The Ringer, that was a clip from the podcast, The Watch. It's hosted by Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan and produced by Kaya McMullen. I actually listen to this podcast and they enable me to keep watching way too many television shows. It brings up something, though, that I want to ask you about, which is there's so much content everywhere. There's so many things to entertain us and to engage us. How do you choose your mind over engaging in more flashy things? How do you recommend people meditate over going to YouTube and watching videos all night? I, that's not me, of course, but just as an example. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, look, it's hard. I, I'm not here to pretend otherwise. Um, and somewhere in the pandemic, I started um, TikTok. And I mean, it's crazily addictive. Somebody called it digital fentanyl. Um, uh, so, yeah, I get it. Um, I absolutely get it. The siren song of distraction and entertainment and shopping uh, and all other ways of self-numbing is very, very strong. And But I'm not against some level of that. I just think that if you, if, if you are sucked in too much, um, you're going to let things that are actually genuine contributors to your happiness wither. Um, and so I think it's about taking an inventory. I'll, I'll tell you what works for me. It's just like having some degree of hopefully not compulsive self-monitoring. Like, how am I doing? How do I feel? Um, and if I'm spending all day scrolling or binging, generally speaking, I'm not going to feel at my best. Mm -hmm. And uh, so what do I? What What are the options to um, help me? You know, do my work. Pay attention to my family and also relax. Uh, so I, I'm I'm all for entertainment. But what 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 are what's what's something else that's gonna you know help me be at my best while I'm doing all of those things? And so for me, exercise, meditation, uh, getting enough sleep, th they're just very simple and hopefully not too time consuming no-brainers that can help you do all the other things you need to do in your life without falling into the pit of despair, which, you know, look at the statistics, the anxiety levels are through the roof. Dan, uh, before I let you go, it's been a decade of 10% happier. What's going to happen in the next 10 years? No pressure. But what's the plan? <laughs> I am six years into writing the sequel, and so that for me is a, a massive focus. Um, the central theme is love, which is a big word, so it's taken me a while to really um, hone this book, and hopefully it'll be out in 2025. Um, I am also increasingly like uh, moving into doing live events, and oh. especially after the pandemic, you know, um, doing live tapings of my podcast, doing retreats that I either organize or help run, meditation retreats, that is. And uh, th that's really fun. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm also thinking about um, pitching a TV show where I um, explore um, enlightenment, which is a very interesting and uh, it's often a sort of gauzy esoteric term, but um, there's, it's actually there are aspects of classical enlightenment that can be applied to people's lives now and I want to see how far I can get personally so you yeah, have a bunch of plans we'll see what actually happens 
It all sounds exciting. I'm looking forward to all of it. Dan Harris, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Me too. Great questions. It was really fun. Thank you, Leo. Dan Harris is the host of the podcast 10% Happier and author of the book 10% Happier, which has a 10th anniversary edition coming out in March. You can find the book in bookstores and the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Everything we played today was picked by Dan. If you like what you heard, we have links and more information on our website at cbc.ca slash podcast playlist. Podcast playlist is Julian Uzielli and Kelsey Cueva. Our intern is Eileen Yamamoto with technical support from Joseph Shamoon. Our senior producer is Kate Evans. Our executive producer is Cecil Fernandez. I'm Leah Simone Bowen. Happy meditating. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.